my dad, I mean, from the beginning, instilled the value of hard work in the, me and my brother, uh, and that's paid dividends through life. We're not entitled to anything, you know, anything that we get in life, we need to earn it. He said many times, I can, you know, I've heard him say throughout my life that it's not what you earn, it's what you spend. You know, and that's, you know, we didn't have everything uh, that we ever wanted growing up, but we had everything we needed and most of what we wanted. It wasn't because dad was a huge earner. It was because he was smart with his money. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 197. This is Clark here with my co-host Jace. Jace, what's going on, man? You catching any of the Olympics? You know, I have watched a few things, some of the swimming and uh, watched a little bit with the gymnastics with my wife and uh, some three-on-three. Unfortunately, U.S. wasn't in the the three-on-three on the men's side, but they were on the women's and did great. But, uh, yeah, how about yeah, you? why weren't they? Why weren't they? They didn't even make the qualifying round, man. It's kind of disappointing being a basketball fan and being such a, a great nation of basketball. But, yeah, we we didn't even make it. Who did they send, though? They didn't send NBA players, right? No, I think I, I think there's, like, these semi-pro league. You know, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. We have one of the – I think it's still the largest three-on-three tournament in the world. Uh, every June, last weekend of June, and like some of the teams that play in that. Granted, I played several times growing up, and a couple times in my adult life. But they, some of these teams, man, they're like professional three-on-three teams. They like travel around. They got sponsors, and all they do is play three-on-three tournaments half court. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So I, I saw an article on CNBC this week that's that's titled "How Here's How Much Olympic Athletes Earn for Winning Medals." So in the U.S. If you win a gold medal, you get paid $37,500. Pretty good amount. In Singapore, if you win a gold, $737,000. So pretty crazy. And then Malaysia, 235000 Kazakhstan, 250 Philippines, 200 The Philippines just had their first gold, so that was cool. Uh, Italy, 215000 to win. If you win a silver in the States here, you get 22500 and then I think you get some other perks that talks about health insurance and access to training facilities and, and this kind of stuff. But almost $40,000, Jace, you could win gold. <laughs> those days of me ever being a, any type of great athlete are, are probably over, man. But you could do, you could do skeet shooting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I'd even, I'd even do very well in that, but it's crazy the disparity though between some of these countries. I mean, Singapore, you mentioned seven hundred and some thousand dollars for a gold medal down to, granted, that's a very expensive country and very wealthy country and very small. So it's probably not likely they'll have a lot of, you know, athletes and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's quite the, quite the disparity. Obviously in this country, they make quite a bit of money, typically off of endorsements and some other means, but it's definitely a full-time job and then some to train for those. And, uh, you know, it's something that they've, you know, worked for, you know, most, most of them for their whole life, really. Right. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, just thought that was interesting. Uh, how much money and the disparity between countries up to each of the individual countries to decide and, and no payment from the Olympic committee, the Olympic or Paralympic committees. So anyway, just kind of interesting there. Good interview last week with Justin. He's 32. He was one of our interviewees that was on his way to becoming a millionaire. So I had a net worth of just over $500,000, about 37% in a brokerage account, 
28% in his primary residence. And just a, a, a good interview with him. Obviously, he's well on his way to becoming a millionaire in his early 30s and continues to build wealth. This week, we have a fun interview, husband and wife, with Graham and Abby, net worth of just over $1 million. Most of it's in their 401ks, IRAs, HSAs, and, and really retirement money. They have about $80,000 in their brokerage, a paid-for house. They used to be landlords but have sold their rental properties, so not anymore. Uh, another interesting tidbit, they lost about 15 to 20% of their wealth during COVID. Obviously, a lot of that has come back, and they've stayed committed to their plan. So fun interview with them and, and obviously cool to have a, a husband and wife on. I'd like to share a review we got this week. This one's uh, titled Hooked. Can't wait to be a guest by Chad08. I never get tired of listening to this podcast. Each story is unique and offers something for the listener to take and apply to their own financial journey. The hosts do an excellent job of asking poignant questions and never talk over or interrupt the guests. Looking forward to being a guest myself in a few years. So thanks, Chad for listening and for leaving a comment. Uh, we'd like more millionaire questions submitted online. So you can go on and use SpeakPipe and we'll play the audio into the show and ask some of our millionaires. And and also we have a couple coming up that we'll talk about during the intro. So we'll play the question asked online and then Jason and I will discuss it either in connection with the millionaires we've talked to or just our own opinions and talk through some of those questions. So call in, go to our website and under the tab, Ask a Millionaire. And you can record a, an audio section there, or you can just write something in via email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So thanks for listening to the show. If you if you enjoy it, we appreciate you leaving a five-star review, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, whatever platform you listen to. It helps us continue to grow the show, which it is. So thanks again for listening. And without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Graham and Abby. Graham and Abby, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Guys, I want to say thanks for uh, giving us the opportunity to be on the podcast. We've enjoyed listening to you. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, I'm Graham. My wife, Abby's here with me as well. You know, my financial journey started, I'd say, very young uh, with my family. And I'll go into more detail on that. But, you know, I've, I've kind of been a kind of a natural saver, I'd say, all throughout my life as well as where we are today. But, uh, just my working career, I've got a degree in business administration and an MBA, which translated into working in the IT healthcare field throughout my career. Uh, so I've been doing that for about 20 years since I graduated college. Uh, yeah, Abby? Yeah. So, um, my financial journey basically started right out of, right out of college. Um, I met Graham and kind of got on board with, um, you know, saving and, all that good stuff. So he's kind of brought me over, over to the good side, I would say. Um, my background is in mental health. So that's, that's where my strong point is. Awesome. And we're going to get a little bit into to your story and, and how you've gotten to where you've gotten to, but what is your net worth today? Yeah. So in the last month or so, kind of this whole rebound from the COVID drop, we hit our kind of everyday millionaire status, as we like to call it. Yeah, probably a couple months ago, and so we're now just over a million. So we're at one, uh, one million and sixteen thousand today. You know, that can go down or up tomorrow. Uh, we've we've been above a million and back below a million, and now we're back above uh, just barely. So you're telling us you've had a lot of celebrations of becoming a millionaire, then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what yeah. I was gonna say, man. You guys yeah. can just keep re-celebrating. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. A, yeah, a bit of a running joke with us. It's like you know, it was kind of a big celebration the first time. Then we went down and then it went back up again. It's like, okay, what do we do this time? Yeah. You know, it's a little <laughs> yeah, mini totally. celebration each time. I mean, how, how much did you go down during COVID? Oh my goodness. Um, 
maybe close to between 150, 175. Wow. Yeah, just in the, you know, obviously in investments. Uh, we stayed the course. We didn't panic. You know, we kind of taught ourselves that, you know, we prepared for this. Like we knew that, you know, there are going to be times along the way where uh, the bottom is going to fall out. We're not retiring anytime soon. So we're prepared to stay the course and we did. And you know, thankfully, I think everybody's, you know, counting their lucky stars that everything rebounds us quickly. Totally. What is the, the allocation of the one million? Yeah. So, uh, investments is the majority of it. That's, uh, 628k. Uh, most of that in retirement accounts. And that's a combination of 401k for my current job, 401ks for previous jobs, IRA accounts. So Abby and I both have IRAs that we fund. Uh, we fully fund HSA every year. I count that in my retirement bucket because we don't spend from that HSA. We intend on, you know, using that money in retirement. You know, we may use it. We actually need it in the future, but for now we're just saving receipts and just uh, investing that money and counting it as retirement. Uh, we have about 80K in brokerage accounts, and that's just a combination of some play money that I put in accounts just for some uh, individual stock investing, but also... I had the opportunity to uh, participate in a stock purchasing program with a previous employer, and we got you know some, some, some substantial amount of stock in that account. Uh, that's still in our brokerage account that we're just holding on to. So that's about ADK in brokerage. Uh, we have about almost forty and five twenty nine accounts for the kids uh, at this point. So all total for all those investments puts us at about six twenty eight. Then we have a paid off home that, that I'm estimating at, at two seventy four. And I've kept it there. It's probably worth a bit more, but you know, I've, I've let I use personal capital for tracking, and I've noticed that if I let it use the Zillow estimate of the amount of the house, then my charts get all out of whack. One day it'll be super high, the next day it's super low, so it messes up our charts. So I've just locked it in at two seventy four. Interesting. How long have you had that paid off house? Two years. Yeah, we paid it off in October of twenty eighteen. So how fast did you pay that off then? Yeah, so we bought the house in 2014. We paid it off in 18. Wow, so that was obviously a, a big goal and a big focus from 14 to 18. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, it certainly was, but there's 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 a story to that. So we bought a house myself you know, when I lived alone, and, and we Abby and I got married in, in 2011. And we had that house almost paid off when we got married, and we just attacked that house, got it paid off, celebrated, and then moved. Like two yeah, like two months later, <laughs> said, "All right, we paid that one off. Let's buy another." So, so we bought this house. So that house was we paid. I paid one thirty one for it. We paid it off in about ten years. We bought this house, kept that house, and rented it, and basically used the income from rent to pay the mortgage for this house. So we we paid about it was about five hundred dollars that we had to pay a month in addition to what we were bringing in in rent. But once the value of that house got to be above what was left on our mortgage for this house, we sold that house. I took that check, immediately paid off my mortgage with it, and we celebrated it. Interesting. So why did you decide to sell that versus keeping, I guess it was paid for rental, correct? Why did you decide to sell that and not continue with that rental income? Yeah, man. So many reasons. Lots of reasons. (laughs) So many reasons, yeah. I mean, not that I'm averse to being a landlord. I mean, I, my buddy and I have some rental properties, and so I've been doing that for years. And I know what that's all about, but yeah, you know, we're followers of Dave Ramsey. Well, I call us Dave Ish. Like we don't do all the Dave things, but you know, I've heard him say many times. You know, when you have a rental property and you're in this situation, would you just evaluate? Would you buy that house just as an investment property? Like you had the opportunity to buy that house, would you buy that one as an investment property? And we wouldn't. I mean, it's on the other side of town. You know, it's not super convenient for me to go over. I'm a very much a DIY type guy. I don't 
really hired many things done. I fixed things myself, but it wasn't convenient, you know, to go fix things. It wasn't really convenient to be chasing rent all the time. I'm telling you, I mean, if you just look at it at the raw, the raw numbers, it seems like a lucrative thing to be investing, but then you start looking at the taxes you have to pay, you know, just on the gains from, from rent. You start looking at the property taxes you have to continue to pay, the insurance you continue to pay on the property. Uh, all those things, when you really dive into the numbers, it becomes not as profitable, at least in our situation, wasn't as profitable as we thought it might be. And the biggest reason, we had three little kids. <laughs> so time is precious for us. And you know, spending that time on a rental property, is, uh, it just it was the right move for us at the right time. For sure. Interesting. So you mentioned you've got an HSA and you don't use that. How long have you been accumulating funds in there and how do you invest that? Yeah. So, you know, we started with the HSA, I'm going to say three years ago. And I would say the first year we did spend from it. I mean, we used that as our source for paying all the bills and started having kids. That's expensive. I had LASIK surgery. We used it to pay for that. And then I, you know, I'm always researching and learning, stumbled across someone just saying, you know, Hey, it's, if you can do it, it's a good investment. You're not going to get a better tax advantage account than HSA. Um, it's a good uh, investment vehicle even for retirement, to just have a separate bucket set aside in retirement that that's how you're going to fund your medical expenses in retirement. So kind of taking that approach in the last few years to just fully fund that. I get a bit of seed money from my company, but the rest, we put it in, you know, out of my paycheck every two weeks and fully fund that. I've got it one of the typical setups where you have to have $2,000 uh, in cash and anything above 2000 you can invest. I, I put it all in BTSAX. So... Simple Path to Wealth, Collins Guy, I've read that book and love it, try to keep things simple. So I just, every two weeks, I put the money in. It takes anything over 2000 in excess, puts it into an investment account, and buys more BPSAs. And and how much do you have in that account? How much is in your HSA? Yeah, so the, we have the 2000 in cash, and then we have just over 10000 in the investment account at this point. Okay, so you got about twelve k total in there that, that you could spend. And I think we'll get into some other stuff with your family and health and and that sort of thing. But let me just ask first, and I think it's fun, first of all, to have a husband and wife on because I don't think we've – we haven't done that many times. I think just a couple times we've had them on. So that's fun for both of you to join us. And Abby, let me ask you, and then Graham, you can follow, how were you raised in terms of thinking about money? How were you brought up financially and how does that impact you both now as you raise your children? You know, for me, um, my family, we were always taught to save, but um, my dad had a job where he would get laid off every year um, and he wouldn't know exactly when he would go back to work. So that was always very difficult for our family. Somewhere along the lines, I kind of skewed from that. So I actually, um, when I got to college, I had a very um, small amount of student loan debt, actually was leasing a car. When I was, um, when Graham and I were dating. So I've come a long way. He's, he has taught me a lot and I'm still learning. Um, so it's, it's been kind of nice to really see that transformation in myself to go from kind of living day to day to actually preparing for the future and what that's going to look like for our kids when they grow up too. So it's been really nice. And Graham, what, yeah, what about you? Sure. Yeah. I would say, you know, I really, you know, started young. Um, I just, I think my brain is kind of wired in a way that I enjoy math and numbers and I'm a natural saver and those things 
play pretty well together to, you know, put me on a, a path to be able to, to save some money. My dad, I mean, from the beginning, instilled the value of hard work into me and my brother uh, both. Uh, and that's paid dividends through life. We're not entitled to anything, you know, anything that we get in life, we need to earn it. He said many times, I can, you know, I've heard him say throughout my life that it's not what you earn, it's what you spend. You know, and that's, you know, we didn't have everything uh, that we ever wanted growing up, but we had everything we needed and most of what we wanted. It wasn't because dad was a huge earner. It was because he was smart with his money. And so I think that uh, was super impactful for me. But just, you know, as far as like investing, he taught me about the rule of 72, like early in life. And I thought, you know, how cool it is just to be able to use numbers to, you know, see how money can grow. You know, taught us all about the power of compound interest, you know, from a very early age. Dad was always a little more of a conservative investor, but it's paid dividends in his life. I mean, it's put him in a good position where he's retired now and comfortable. I've been a bit more aggressive uh, through my, uh, my investing, but all that foundation for investing came from him. Uh, from the very first time I started earning money, he encouraged me and my brother to start buying savings bonds. And I still actually have some of them. I think one's mature and I've cashed it in, but the rest are still slowly just churning along, you know, drawing a, a few dollars interest here and there. And I still have them in my safety deposit box. So, um, and my parents both, I mean, have put instilled in my brother and I the value of doing things yourself. So that kind of spirit of do, the DIY and realizing the satisfaction of learning a new skill and putting that to use and being able to take a step back and be proud of what you accomplished by putting your mind to it. That just, you know, give us a really good foundation to start. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks yeah. for sharing. And, and I, yeah. I, I think it's so critical Right. As we talk to all these millionaires and obviously looking at our own lives, a lot of the people that end up in this situation, right, are those that have been taught from a young age or obviously picked it up at some point. Right. And those that have picked it up earlier are obviously so grateful that they were raised that way and could get an earlier start. So how I know your kids are very young still, but is there something you guys have talked about and said, hey, that's what we want to do to help teach our kids about money? Or is that still a work in progress as they as they get older? Yeah, that's already started. I don't know. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Can, oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. I'm already, we already see it with our four year old. You know, we will, we'll be at the grocery store and she'll see something and she'll say, Oh, I want that. And then she'll go, but you know what? We really don't need that. And I'm like, you get it already, you know, at four, <laughs> already making those decisions because she hears us talk about it every day, you know, and it's, it's not that we can't buy it. We just don't need it. We try to live a little more of a simple lifestyle. And I think that, you know, that, just what they see from day to day just kind of carries over, carries over. Yeah. She's so, already, yeah, our, our oldest has already, you know, said things about, you know, she, if she gets birthday money or whatever, using some of that to help people, using some of that to put back the rainy day and spend some of it. So mm-hmm. that's warms our heart to hear stuff like that. Sure. Sure. So along your children, as we're, as we're talking about this, I know you have one child that has Down syndrome. Right. right. And yeah. and we talked previously about how you had to navigate some of those expenses and, and challenges. So I'm I'm curious to take to get your take on that. Obviously, admittedly, I, I'm not too well versed on it. So I don't know quite exactly what questions to ask in terms of insurance and the, the specificities behind that. But talk a little bit about that and how how that's been a challenge and how you've been able to navigate through it. So then um, he's a twin and. He was actually a birth diagnosis. Um, we didn't know he had Down syndrome until about, I guess, four hours after he was born. It was a bit of a whirlwind. We didn't know anything about Down syndrome at the time. You know, we were at the time completely devastated. Like, what in the world are we, are we, are we in? And it started, it all started with, um, how long were they? 24 days in the NICU, both of them. 
So, you know, so we were hit with that with the NICU. And then we learned that he had some heart, possible heart issues may um, that would require surgery, maybe in the future, all kinds of things. You know, you start Googling Down syndrome, it's like all of this list of medical things. It was very overwhelming at the time. But we navigated through that. And he actually, he just had heart surgery nine weeks ago, which um, was a bit of a surprise. We weren't expecting it to be this soon, but he's, he's doing well. But it's just with Down syndrome, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, thank the Lord, he's very healthy for the most part. But um, things are a bit of a surprise, like heart surgery. You know, there are certain things like certain tests he has to have every year, like we have to check for leukemia. When it comes to insurance, sometimes they can be a little bit squirrely. Don't want to cover things, medical equipment, therapy equipment, all those things they don't want to cover. Um, so we really have to fight and we have to advocate. And thank goodness, you know, we're in a position to where if he, if there's something that he needs, we can get that. One of the things that we worked very, very hard to do is to get secondary Medicaid. And a piece of advice I could give anyone in this situation is fight so very hard for that because it's so important. You know, we were hit with a surgery that was over upwards of $160,000 which of course we wouldn't have had to have paid all that, but still it would have been roughly $6,000. Well, our Medicaid card helped us not pay that gigantic bill. So I would just say, you know, continue the fight. We had to talk to dozens and dozens of people and spend hours in the um, community-based services office. And, you know, we got shut down so many times, but we kept fighting and we kept fighting and we finally got it approved. And thank goodness we did because it, it has saved us thousands. Yeah, it really has. And it's it's set up to make you get weary and give up. Mm-hmm. And we, we know a lot of folks that have done that, you know, that they just, the process is so arduous that it just doesn't seem worth it. And now that we're on the other side of the process, man, it was a battle, but it's paying dividends for us, you know, and just knowing that we have that security, the secondary Medicaid, that if uh, insurance doesn't pick something up, that Medicaid will pick it up. Or even if we have deductibles and out-of-pocket uh, maximum you know, expenses that we have to pay for being for co-pays, Medicaid pays that. We never see a bill for it. Man, that made it so worth it. It was the you know, battle was worth it when we log in and see the, you know, how expensive things are. And instead of us getting the bill, it's, it's being paid by Medicaid. You know, he's in therapies every week. He does speech therapy and occupational and physical therapy. And, you know, typical insurance companies will only allow you so many visits per year. And he needs way more than whatever, whatever they give. So it has been an absolute godsend to have that. Well, it's amazing what you guys are doing. So, uh, I mean, really remarkable. And, and I, I can't even imagine, right, the time to go in. And I mean, look, look at the time to spend on something you don't know how it works or a, a place you want to visit or a move, right? Like, mm-hmm. this has got to be times a million, right, to be researching it and, and trying to figure everything out. So really mad respect to you both for doing it. It's it's amazing. So along that journey, Graham, I think you mentioned not getting like it's built up to get you down, right? Because it's it's arduous and it's tedious. Have you gotten down in life, whether on this or in your financial journey? Or is there times where you felt like maybe you weren't making as much progress? And, And if so, how did you how did you get over that? Yeah, I mean, certainly for the journey with Ben, I mean, there's roadblocks everywhere. I mean, it's set up that way. It's unfortunate. That's the one thing when we got that birth diagnosis that we weren't prepared for. Like, we knew we had so much to learn about Down syndrome, but we had no clue how much red tape there would be. That's, that's been 
unbelievable. Yeah, we, we certainly have gotten down, but we regroup. You know, we just come back and say, man, today I spent all day in an office filling out an application that some, the person that filled it out on the other end of the desk did it wrong. And so I have to start over and go back the next week and start over and spend all day again. But we did it. I mean, mm-hmm. we just said, you know what? It's worth the, the battle. And so we did it. You know, that's so, yeah, we've been down, uh, but we're our, each other's best supporter. And we, you know, just remind ourselves what the end goal is here. We fight. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think it really it boils down to what are we trying to do here, you know, and that is to secure not only our future, but for him and for our girls, too. You know, we have to stay the course. And, and I think one thing, one really neat thing about Down syndrome that he has kind of taught us how to do that, because, you know, by nature, I'm not patient at all. But because, you know, Down syndrome is what it is. We're kind of forced to be a little more patient because he works and he operates in his own time. So we yeah. really have learned a whole lot from him that has helped carry over into this portion of our lives. Yeah. Um, and even into you know, our financial journey, you know, the, the patience that's required there, you know, it's not uh, kind of equate our journey to the, like the tortoise and the hare. It's like slow and steady wins the race. That's the way it's been. It's never mm-hmm. been big windfalls of money or big moves that we've made that have substantially boosted our Network. It's just been a slow climb, um, and that's that's taking patience to get there. Totally. How have you all been able to to stay on the same page through all this? Yeah. Um, so through the financial journey, you know, I was kind of on a financial path already. I think when we met, but just not as intentional about it as as we are now. But we we talk a lot. You know, I think Abby. There's so many things that she does better than me, like a million things that I could not even begin uh, to contribute. You know, I'm not. Offer the help, but I know she's the expert. And I think the financial journey, that's one of those things where, uh, I have an interest in it. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means, uh, in investing, but it's, it's neat to me. So I, I study it, you know, and I, I, I spend time on it, I spend time thinking about it when I'm on my mower out mowing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think she relies on me to, for, to make a lot of the choices of where the money's going to go, but we always talk about it. Mm-hmm. No moves that are ever made without, uh, talking it through first. So. She's been a you know, wonderful supporter, but I think it's, you know, it's really in my wheelhouse to do the investing. So I've done most of it. And to that point, as, as you talk about these things with your children and, and the needs going forward, how do you set goals for yourself? Where are you trying to get to? And maybe what are some of the things that, that y'all have done around family planning that might be different than, than people who don't have a child with special needs? Yeah, it's a good question. So... I will say this, you know, we a couple of years ago got intentional about let's sit down and think about what we want to do for our kids for college planning. And so we opened 529 accounts for Emmy, who was born four years ago, and then the twins came along, and then we had Ben and Eliza. We weren't really sure if a 529 was the right move. Not that we set any limits on him or don't believe that he can achieve, but uh, we have to be very careful in the way that we allocate money to him. Uh, when it comes to his ability to get assistance in the future and having things in his name. So that's a tightrope we've had to walk with him. We didn't open a 529 for him. There are other accounts like ABLE accounts that are set aside specifically for uh, folks that are disabled that we're considering for Ben. You know, we think the sky's the limit for him, but we're, you know, we're trying to be realistic and mindful of, of the way that we plan. Mm-hmm. But even with those 529 accounts, what we said, we agreed on this at the beginning is, we don't think it's in our kids' best interest to fully fund their college. I don't know that they'll go to college, first of all. Maybe right. they won't. But I don't think it's putting a good them 
giving them a good foundation to say, okay, we saved money for college. Here you go. Now, maybe we'll fund part of it and we'll expect them to work for the rest. We never want them to take a loan and go into any type of debt at all. But, you know, it seems like a great life lesson to partially fund it or set some type of limits to it. If you want to go to the state school, live at home, we'll pay it all. You want to get fancy and live in an apartment or, you know, go to some private college, you can, but, you know, there's, there's going to be some limits there. And that's not that we, you know, we don't believe that we'd be able to afford it. We just don't necessarily believe it'd be the best for our kids. Yeah, we just think it's really important just to teach that value of hard work. You know, we're both from Eastern Kentucky, so I'd like to say we're pretty stubborn and, and um, that sort of thing. So we really want our kids to just to understand that you have to work hard for what you have. So, and then you appreciate it more. So that's what we really want them to take away from some of this. Yeah, totally. So do you all have a, a net worth goal for yourselves or a passive income goal that you, you're trying to strive for either, you know, towards retirement or down the road? You know, <laughs> I look at it from lots of different angles. You know, I have a retirement goal. I'd like to retire if I can retire earlier than when the kids go off to college. That'd be great. But that's my goal right now. So you're talking the twins are two, you know, 16 years from now. I'd love to be able to retire. Uh, I do look a lot at the like the five numbers, like what could we live on, what do we need investments to be able to, to live on if I retire early. We to do that, we would need to ramp up our brokerage accounts a bit. You know, having we have Western retirement accounts so we can pull it out uh, before retirement age if we wanted to. Uh, I don't think we've really set a number goal. I mean, our five number would actually be pretty low because we just we're not big spenders. We just mm-hmm. don't spend a lot of money. It's not that we can't. It's just that we're simple folks and we we don't have to have the nicest cars and. You know, if we want one, we go pay cash for it. And, uh, we don't go on fancy vacations. And so our, no, we, have. We, we have, but we don't normally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our five number is pretty low. Maybe that's something we'll try to strive to get to that number at some point. But right now we hit a million. We, we said, okay, what should our next goal be? Uh, I think it's just going to be try to get to a million in, in investments. Yeah. And you guys currently have no debt, I assume. But did you have debt, student loans, any, any other big debts before? I did. I had about um, $6,000 worth of student loan debt, um, and we paid that off I think right when we got married. And then I actually went to graduate school, but we cash flowed that. So got my master's degree in mental health with focus on marriage and counseling, um, marriage and family counseling, cash flowed all of that. And then, you know, the lease, we... <laughs> Knew that was a terrible idea when I went into it, but at the time I was a poor college student and felt like I didn't have any other choice other than to do that. But once we got out from under that, paid for a car in cash, and that's pretty much that's pretty much all the yeah. Well, good for you. Good for you to pay it yeah. off. Did Did you guys worry about money? Do you still work? Do you still worry about money? Uh I would say no. I, I don't. I don't, I don't worry about money and it's not because we have money. It's because I know how to make money. You know, I think I have the, the, the mindset and the skills that if we went back to zero, I know how I got here. I think I can do it again. So it's not really about what's in our bank account. It's just about the mindset of what got this in our bank account. But I think we can get back here. Now, anything can happen. I mean, you know, we worry about being disabled or things like that. You know, we have life insurance policies and, uh, you know, set ourselves up to be in a good position in the future, but no, I don't. I don't spend, you know, and that, be honest, it's part of the reason that I am, you know, have taken us on this journey to get us to a point of comfort. So we spend, I spend zero time worried about how am I going to pay for the next thing? I mean, mm-hmm. we, if something yeah. breaks, let's go buy a new one. I, well, 
That's not necessarily true. I either try to fix it. <laughs> and so I tear it apart and try to fix it to the point where I just can't do it. And it, it's just broken. But if it's to that point, I just go buy them. <laughs> yeah. Anytime yeah. worrying about, you know, how am I going to pay for this? Yeah. So let me just ask you guys some rapid fire questions and then we'll finish up with some last mistakes and, and advice. So what's sure. your, if you're comfortable sharing, what's your annual household spending? Uh, sure. So about 3500 a month. You know, it was about what we spent. On okay. So you're about four grand or 40 grand a year. Yep. Ish. Okay. Uh, if you're comfortable sharing, what's been your range of household income through your working life? Yeah. So when I started in 2000, I was making about 30,000, 32. Exactly. It's $15 an hour. Uh, 31.5, I think. And I now my, uh, income is 140K uh, and then occasional bonuses. I don't always get one, but we don't rely on it. Uh, but we do it sometimes. So that's been the range, you know, low 30s to, to 140 now. Okay, awesome. So just to wrap up here, I mean, it's obviously been a tremendous journey. You, you guys are millionaires. You're well on your way to more than that, right? You're probably going to retire early, it sounds like, or you want to or close to early. As yeah. you look back, what advice do you give to somebody who's starting this this journey or maybe to a young couple that has a special needs child or if, along with that, are there mistakes you made or something you wish you would have done differently? Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, the first thing I'd say is it just to start investing, just to start. I mean, start as soon as you can. As soon as the first time that someone says, can you sign up for a 401ks? Start putting money in it. You don't have to know what you're doing. You don't have to be intelligent about it. A lot of people just don't start because they don't feel like they know what they're doing. It's intimidating. You know, we, we run the numbers of Abby and I were looking at it last night, you know, putting in $200 a month at 20. And what that turns into, even at 7%, you know, annual return versus waiting until you're 40 to get started. You know, you're talking millions of dollars of difference, you know, so just starting as soon as you can and you'll never miss it. I mean, 200 bucks from the very first paycheck you get, you're never going to miss it because you never had it. So mm -hmm. don't be afraid to fail. And I think this applies to our financial journey and, you know, just our journey with Ben. Uh, you will fail and you, but you've got to get up and try again. You know, it doesn't mean stop just because you failed. It means you gotta, uh, you gotta, you gotta get up and try again. And, you know, even, you know, applying that to just investing in general, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're failing when the market starts tanking. Like everybody feels like a genius when, you know, it's a, you're on a bull run, but as soon as the, you know, you hit a, a blip and it starts going down, you feel like, you know, I've got to get out. And this was a mistake. You've got to train your brain to not feel that way, particularly if you've got, you know, a long time in investing, uh, still to go and you're not, you know, going to retire anytime soon, you've got to be willing to stay the course. Yeah, yeah. And and Abby, what about you? I would say lots of grace. You know, we, there are times, whether it's our age difference or our backgrounds or whatever, that, you know, sometimes we aren't on the same page, but we give each other grace and we try to come to a place of understanding and we're, you know, we try to be compassionate with each other. You're going to make mistakes. It is, it's a difficult thing, especially when you throw three small children in the mix, one with complex medical and, and um, educational needs. So just lots of grace. That will be my big point. Well, thank you guys both so much. It's so fun to have a couple on and to hear both sides of it and to ask questions that pertain to couples, right? And how you guys work together. So thanks for so much for coming on. Net worth of 1 million, Graham and Abby. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, 
and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. 